Hello and welcome to EndNotes, a WooCast production. In this series, we take you behind the cover and through the pages of books on politics, policy, and more, all written by faculty at Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School. I'm Rose Huber, and joining me today is Atul Cooley, David K.E. Bruce Professor of International Affairs and Professor of Politics at Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School. Atul's research interests are in the area of political economy of developing countries. Today, we're going to be discussing his new book, Imperialism in the Developing World, How Britain and the United States Shaped the Global Periphery. Welcome to the show, Atul. Thanks so much for having me. So I thought it might, um, since we're going to be talking a lot about imperialism today, I thought it might help some of our listeners, some of our general listeners, get a sense of what that is all about. So could you give us sort of a definition, a basic definition of what that encompasses? Sure, I'll be happy to. Uh, I use the term imperialism to refer to a process that involves growing control of one state over another state, or people for that matter. I also make a distinction between formal empire and informal empire. Formal imperialism, or people often call it colonialism, revolves, involves territorial control. By informal empire, in turn, I refer to a situation in which a dominant power is in a position to control policies in another state without controlling territory. Often, uh, coercion is an important part of this informal control. That's very, very helpful. Thank you. So I guess now we could dig a little bit more into the book, which is comparing British and American, American imperialism for over two centuries. Can you tell us why you focused on these two countries and what began to emerge Well, I chose to focus on British and American empires because Britain and the United States were the hegemonic powers, the great powers, if you like, in the 19th and the 20th centuries, respectively. I wanted to understand how these two great powers sought to control, influence, and shape the underdeveloped parts of the world during the centuries they respectively dominated. As my studies proceeded, some common patterns began to stand out. Two of these, I think I will mention at the outset, uh, we can come back to the details. First, both Britain and the United States expanded into the poor parts of the world, that is the pre-industrial parts of the world, seeking to enhance their own national prosperity. That's what's really drove them anywhere from East India Company, where Britain went, to United States moving into Cuba or Philippines. And they did so while claiming that they only sought human betterment in the global periphery, including saving souls in the 19th century or bringing democracy in the 20th century. And the second pattern which I noticed over and over again was that the impact of Anglo-American expansion on the life chances of people living in the poor parts of the world was more often negative than positive. So the book uh, has a few key takeaways or findings, if you will, and one is that countries use these predictable methods to control those on the global periphery. Can you tell us a bit more about those predictable methods that you reference in the book? Let me just say, let me say a word about both formal and informal empire. Formal political control or colonialism is fairly obvious as far as methods of political control go. 
Colonialism involves the use of superior force to subdue weaker powers and then control their territory, economy, and governments. The British used this method extensively, especially in India and in parts, large parts of Africa. The United States also experimented with colonialism in the early 20th century in the Philippines and Cuba, but quickly got rather tired of it. The more mysterious method of control, which requires elaboration, is how informal power is exercised. The British complemented their colonialism with informal empire in places as varied uh, as the Ottoman Empire, Qing China, and Latin America. Then, for the United States in the 20th century, informal empire emerged as the main method of control. By then, colonialism was almost passé and was not America's uh, approach to empire. What I found was that both Britain and the U.S., when it comes to imposing informal control, followed a common strategy. I label this strategy an effort to achieve stable but subservient governments in peripheral countries. Stability is essential to facilitate economic interactions, and subservience is necessary so that economic interactions are carried out on terms that are favorable to the metropolitan powers. Over and over again, I noticed that Britain and the U.S. were trying to prop up friendly regimes, quote-unquote, friendly regimes in peripheral countries. Just as an example, an example that I liked quite a bit, is how both Britain and United States cooperated in the early part of the 20th century to prop up Qing China. On the one hand, they wanted to make sure that the Qing don't disintegrate. This was essential to keep having a unified Chinese market. On the other hand, they wanted to make sure that the Qing were not powerful enough so that they could pursue their own autonomous path uh, in the modern world. And so that's what I mean by sort of st stable but subservient. The more recent examples of, of the same strategy are, of course, what United States is trying to achieve in Iran, excuse me, in Iraq or in Afghanistan, and as most of my audience will know, with mixed success at best. Right. That's a good example, a good recent example. In the book, you also show how imperialism is driven by a need to achieve national economic prosperity and how imperial control affects poor countries. Can you go into a little bit more detail about this? Yes, indeed. These are, of course, the central concerns of the book. Those two themes run for more than 500 dense pages of the book. Uh, with respect to Britain, for example, I analyze the motives that took the British to India, to establish informal empire over Argentina, Egypt, and China, and then finally to establish colonies in Africa, especially Nigeria, the one I focus on. For the United States, in turn, I analyze why the U.S. expanded overseas following the Spanish-American War, especially in Cuba, Philippines, parts of Central America, countries such as Nicaragua, and China, of course. During the Cold War years, then I go on to ask the same question about motives, that is, what led the United States to move into, in, to intervene in select countries, and I analyze American intervention in Iran, Vietnam, and Chile. 
And finally, I study the most recent American efforts to influence economic policies of Latin America during the Washington Consensus years 1980s and 1990s, and then in the new century, the American War in Iraq. Through this analysis of these cases, I'm able to argue that for most of these cases, I find that British and American motives were mainly economic. In a case here or there, such as American intervention in Vietnam, the motives were not directly economic. For the most part, however, the hypothesis or the suggestion or the argument, if you like, that the taproot of imperialism or the root cause of imperialism is the pursuit of national economic prosperity by hegemonic powers holds up pretty well uh, through the evidence. And the second main theme, as you asked me, of course, is about the impact of imperialism on uh, poor parts of the world. And here I'm able to demonstrate the economic importance of sovereignty. A key argument of the book is that sovereignty is an economic asset. If you think about it for a minute, that argument, argument goes squarely against the mainstream arguments about importance of globalization and open economies. So that's what I'm arguing against, if you like. The countries that had the least con control over their own affairs, say, such as British colonies in India and Nigeria, I am able to show that they suffered the worst economic exploitation. Countries within the scope of British and American informal empire, that is to say, where territorial control was minimal, but the official policies were controlled from the outside, they did a little better than full colonies, mainly because they were able to sort of share in economic growth. They experienced some economic growth. However, however, even in these countries, say Argentina in the 19th century, which grew quite handsomely, or Iran under the US-supported Shah, Shah of Iran in the 20th century, still were not really developing because they remained dependent on commodity exports and failed to industrialize. The backward countries, I'm finally able to demonstrate that have found their way to begin industrialization and have success often required sovereign and effective states as key agents to steer this process. The best examples of this in the 19th century is, of course, Meiji Japan, and in more recent time period, say post-1980, are China, India, and Vietnam, which are growing rapidly and industrializing. Thank you for going into all that detail. I know it's a pretty dense book, and this is probably a little bit of a difficult question to answer, but it's something I ask everyone who comes in the studio. What was the hardest chapter or part of this to write, and why? Uh, it's not easy to answer, Rose. Thank you. Uh, it's a good question, though. It gets to heart of the right process of writing a book. Mm -hmm. uh, the book took nearly a decade to write. Each chapter took about a year or more to write. Wow. So it was never easy, you know, but it was also deeply engrossing and satisfying. I thoroughly enjoyed working on it. At times I wondered, God, they pay me to do this, <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but still, since you ask, I think the hardest chapter was chapter five of the book. That is a chapter on American interventions during the Cold War in Iran, Vietnam, and China. Since I argue that American motives or interests behind these interventions were economic, 
I'm arguing against the grain. The common analysis of these cases is that there were American efforts to fight communism in the context of Cold War. So to sustain an economic argument, I had to do a lot of difficult re research, including I spent a summer in Vietnam doing field work and interviews with Vietnamese generals who had fought in the war and mm. diplomats, etc. And archival research on U.S. foreign policymaking, especially in Kennedy Papers in Boston. So it was a lot of work, but also I'm especially proud of that chapter, though I think reviewers will not be easily satisfied. Mm. They will take issue with it. Right, right. You know, you, you mentioned some recent examples with Iraq and Afghanistan, and I wanted to bring the book a little bit more to today. What do your findings say about sort of what we're seeing around the world currently? You know, since I finished writing the book, I see what's happening in the world through the eyes of my own books. Right. I could go on and on, yeah. but let me just be brief. You know, if you look around, both Iran and Iraq are very much in the news. You cannot open New York Times without one or the other country uh, being, in the being in the news. I think my book provides essential background materials to understanding such conflicts. In both these cases, for example, the U.S. intervened and over time attracted the wrath of Iraqi or Iranian nationalists. The ongoing battle, you know, and as another case, the ongoing battle between imperialism and nationalism is a central theme of the book. And even American tensions with China today are viewed in China through the historical lens of imperial hum humili humiliation. So the point is that many developing countries of the world filter their view of the world through the historical prism of subjugation at the hands of Western empire. This is true for Iraq, Iran, China, and a number of other cases that I have analyzed. In other words, modern world does not make sense without being sanguine of its imperial origins. You know, since we're at policy school, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask if the book offers any sort of implications for policy. I'm sure it does. <laughs> yes. You know, again, it could be varied. I could say something about U.S. approach to China or this mm -hmm. or that. But I think one strong and immediate lesson is that the United States will be better off not starting a war in Iran. My book yeah. demonstrates that American wars against politically mobilized population in poor countries, which Iran definitely is, have often cost the Americans greatly in terms of manpower, soldiers, and treasure, but without achieving their goals. This ought to be a central lesson of both Vietnam and Iraq wars, both for which are analyzed in some detail in the book. And it follows from such analysis that an armed intervention in Iran will be really foolhardy. Well, Atul, we're just about out of time, but is there anything else you want to add about the book or, or let our listeners know about? Yes. I, you know, I would like to end by suggesting that the book is written for both developing country and advanced industrial country citizens. When it comes to developing country citizens, I hope they will remember the past and present of imperialism and learn lessons from it. And for citizens of advanced industrial countries, I hope that they continue to re-examine the hypocrisies that cloak imperial ventures while as efforts to do good in the world. Thank you. Imperialism and the Developing World, How Britain and the United States Shape the Global Periphery is available now through Oxford University Press and wherever else you find books. I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Atul. Thanks for having me. 
We want to thank our listeners for tuning in to EndNotes, currently available on SoundCloud. The show is produced and edited by me, Rose, and recorded by audio engineer Dan Kearns. The graphics used for the show were produced by Egan Jimenez. Take care, everyone. You've been listening to EndNotes, a series produced by WooCast, the podcast enterprise of Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. The content you've just heard does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Woodrow Wilson School.